0: If you haven't already, um, open up your Bibles or your app to Psalm 26, and uh, I hope you brought a notebook with you, got your pencil sharpened, um, because we're going to get into this text today. It's a wonderful prayer, and it's one that I think will instruct us well today. Uh, here at the outset, I want to recommend a book to you. It's titled, Character Still Counts. Um, And it's by an author, pastor named James Merritt. It's a wonderful book. Um, And the tagline on the back of the book is really good. And this is kind of where we're going to begin. It says, stop protecting your reputation. Start building your character. That's a really good word to us. Stop protecting your reputation. Start building your character. Do not... Concern yourself with your reputation. You cannot control what other people think of you. But you can work on your character. You can do things every single day that will strengthen your character. And in chapter 1 of his book, the author writes that if character were a deck of cards, then integrity would be the trump card. He says, if you're building a house of character, the foundation would be integrity. Lastly, he says, the fountainhead of the river of character is integrity because all other virtues flow from this one character trait. So I think you get the point, the importance of integrity to our character. I want to share a story here at the outset. It's one that the author tells in this book. It's about a time that he was in Beijing and had the opportunity to see the Great Wall of China. Now, I've never been. Some of you, perhaps, have been there and have seen it have walked on it. But the author says as he walked on top of it, he marveled at a wall so thick that you couldn't break through it. He was astounded at a wall so long that you couldn't go around it. He was amazed at a wall so tall that you couldn't go over it. And as he walked on top of the wall, he wondered to himself just how any army was ever able to invade China after the wall's completion. But he says his fascination was short-lived when a guide told him that within the first century after completion of the wall... China was successfully invaded three times by the barbaric armies of the north. And so, a little perplexed, he asked the guide, how did this happen? Did the barbarians go over the wall? The guide said no. Well, did the armies go around the wall? The guide said no. Well, did the armies go under the wall? The guide said no. Well, he knew that there was no way that the armies had gone through the wall, and so he said, well, how did they get into China? And the guide replied, all three times, they bribed the gatekeeper and walked right in. Isn't that amazing? You see, no matter how great something looks like from the outside, and the Great Wall of China is very impressive. It's been said that It's the only man-made object that you can see from outer space. Now, whether that's actually true, I've never been in space to test that out. But it's a testament to its size. No No matter how impressive you look to others from the outside, no matter the effort that you put into your outward appearance, without integrity on the inside, everything falls apart. Approximately 1 million Chinese people spent 200 years working to build an impassable wall in the lack of integrity of one gatekeeper. Destroyed all of it. It's the importance of integrity. I want to share with you two of my favorite quotes about integrity. C.S. Lewis says, said, Integrity is doing the right thing when no one's looking. That's a great quote. Then Martin Luther King Jr. said this about integrity. It's always the right time to do the right thing. Well, our psalm this morning, Psalm 26, is a psalm about integrity. It's a psalm of integrity. David begins and ends this psalm talking about his integrity. Integrity. Uh, Verse 1 in my NIV 84 that was read this morning reads, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have led a blameless life. Then verse 11 reads, but I lead a blameless life. Now, if you read that in a different version, in the ESV, verse 1 reads, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. Then in verse 11, the ESV reads, but as for me... I shall walk in integrity. This is the same if you read out of the NLT. The NLT reads, Declare me innocent, O Lord, for I have acted with integrity. Then it ends up in verse 11, But I'm not like that. I live with integrity. So it's all about integrity. You know, the Hebrew word used uh, in both verse 1 and verse 11 is the Hebrew word tom, which literally means whole or complete. So when the Hebrew was translated into the Latin, the word chosen for translation is the Latin word integer, which means whole or complete. We're familiar with this word. In mathematics, an integer is a whole number. It's not a fraction. It's not a mixed number. It's not a decimal. It's a whole number. An integer is the root of the word integrity. It means to live a whole or complete life. I like to define integrity in this way, as integrating God into your whole life. Integrating God into every aspect of your life. Don't compartmentalize God. Don't make God something you only do for one hour on a Sunday morning. Integrate God into every aspect of your life, into your whole life, into your work, at home, in your marriage, at school, with your friends. Who you are at church on Sunday morning is the same person you are with your friends on Friday night. That's integrity. And that's what David is writing about in this psalm. Now, by saying that he has walked in integrity, he does not mean that he's been sinless. He does not mean that he's perfect in his walk. Now, I could see how someone might think that by the NIV's translation of a blameless life. However, in verse 11, David says in the NIV, but I lead a blameless life, Therefore, redeem me and be merciful to me. So if at the end of the prayer, he's pleading for God's mercy and his redemption, he's not saying that he's lived a perfect life. By walking in integrity, he doesn't mean that he's walked in perfection or walked in sinlessness. In fact, we know the life of David. We know better. We have the benefit of having David's worst mistakes in print for us to read over and over again throughout every generation. Think about that with me for a second. Can you imagine if your worst mistake, if the details of your biggest and baddest sin were written down in print for everyone to read and dissect for the rest of time, Uh, We know that David did not live a perfect life. So what does he mean by a life of integrity? God himself says in 1 Kings 9 verse 4 that David walked in integrity. God said that David walked in integrity of heart when he meets with uh, Solomon. Talks to him about David and his integrity. And so... We know that it does not mean to walk perfectly or sinlessly, but what does it mean? What does it look like to walk in integrity? What does that kind of life look like? Well, in Psalm 26, David informs us in this prayer about an important aspect to his walk of integrity, and perhaps it's one that we don't talk about enough, but it's critical. And so I want us to talk about it this morning. I don't know... That I've ever specifically spoken about this uh, with this kind of uh, length in a sermon, but I'm, I'm excited to talk about it this morning because it's so crucial to our walk with the Lord and so crucial and critical to our integrity. What I want us to look at this morning is our conscience, is our conscience, Verse 2, David writes, test me, O Lord, and try me, examine my heart and my mind. Now, this is really cool. You're going to like this because it's a combination of theology and biology, which is right in my wheelhouse. I really like that. So literally here, David is praying to God to test and to examine his two most important internal organs. The heart and not the brain. Now, if you're reading in the NIV and read mind, you might think brain. But other translations will tell you what this word actually is in the Hebrew. uh, That the second most important internal organ for the Hebrews during this time period were the kidneys. And so, this psalm literally reads, examine my heart and my kidneys. David's praying to God for God to examine these internal organs of his. Now, the heart was thought to be the control center of the human. Our will and our emotions were located in the heart. The kidneys... Were thought to be the seat of our conscience. The thinking was that our moral discernment was located in our kidneys. So when you put the heart and the kidneys together, you have a very important combination. You see, the kidneys act as our moral compass. It's the part of us that discerns what is right and what is wrong. And the heart acts as our moral conviction. It's the part of us that provides the strength and the passion and the desire to act upon what is right. So the kidneys are the moral compass, and the heart is the moral conviction, and they work together to make up our conscience. And our conscience is critical to a walk of integrity. Not only do we need the kidneys to discern what is right, but we need the heart to act upon what is right. Now, the Bible says many things about our conscience. The Bible says that we can have a guilty conscience. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. So loaded down with guilt from past failures, past bad decisions, past poor choices, that we become paralyzed in the present. no longer able to make decisions about what's right and what's wrong because we're just paralyzed out of fear and having and failure. Bible also says that we can have a seared conscience. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. A conscience that's so hardened by choices. That we become insensitive to what's right and to what's wrong. Bible says we can have a weak conscience. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 through 12. A conscience that's so immature that we, we lack knowledge about what is right and what's wrong. The Bible also says we can have a corrupted conscience. Titus chapter 1 and verse 15. So corrupted by our sin, so corrupted by the sin of the world, that we lose our ability to discern right from wrong. Uh, The compass no longer works right within us. What's up is down, and what's down is up. But Paul, in Acts chapter 24, verse 16, states, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. That's the desire, to keep our conscience clear, clear of clutter that's caused by guilt and selfishness and immaturity and corruption. This is why David prays for God to examine his conscience, which is a word that literally means to burn metal by fire in order to make it pure. Burn away all the impurities away from my conscience. Burn away the guilt. Burn away the selfishness and the immaturity and the sin. David knows the importance of a clear conscience to his walking in integrity of heart. And, and listen, church, I am convicted more than ever in order to have a clear conscience in our current culture that our consciences need to be calibrated. If we are not calibrating our consciences, our consciences will be conformed to the world. They'll be conformed to the influences and culture. But our consciences need to be calibrated. And how does this happen? How do we calibrate our consciences? Glad that you asked. I want to share two, two things this morning with you that... Begin with C's, two C's this morning. As we look to calibrate our conscience. First way to calibrate our conscience is through consistency. Consistency. Verse one reads I have walked in integrity. That's past tense. In the past, David's saying, I've walked in integrity in the past. Verse 11 reads, I will walk in integrity. That's future tense. David's saying, my, my plan is to walk in integrity in the future. But in verse 3, he says that I walk continually. He says, for your love is ever before my eyes And I walk continually in your truth or in your faithfulness. This is present tense. It's ongoing action in the present. It's daily. I have walked in the past. I will walk in the future. And I walk in it continually. I walk in it moment to moment, decision to decision. I walk in it continually You see, whatever we do consistently, whatever we do continually informs and forms our conscience. Does that make sense? Whatever we do over and over again trains and shapes our conscience. So my question to us this morning is, what are you consistently and continually doing? How do you consistently and continuously fill up your time? Because that's shaping and forming your, your conscience. In other words, what types of habits are you forming? There's a great quote that I came across uh, in my studies this week. It's from an unknown source, but it goes like this. Watch your thoughts because they become your words. And watch your words because they become your actions. Watch your actions because they become your habits. And watch your habits because they become your character. Ah, that's so good. It's so critically important for us to watch our thoughts, to pay attention to what fills our mind. And it's so important to watch what we say for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And it's really crucial to watch what we do because whatever we do consistently, whatever we do continually, our habits, they calibrate our conscience. So what are your habits? Listen to what David said that he did continually. Verse 3, this was his habit. He says, I keep my eyes ever on your faithful love. Always on your covenant friendship that we talked about last week. It's ever before me. I never take my eyes off of it. All oh, my eyes want to wonder. I never, I, I, I've created a habit where I never take my eyes off of your steadfast love for me. And I walk continually in your truth. Not in my understanding of truth, Not in what the world says is true, but in God's truth. I walk continually in your truth. You see, David has created habits of keeping his eyes always on God's love and of walking continually in God's truth. You know, this is why making daily habits of reading God's word is so important. This is why praying to God daily is so significant. This is why being here together as a church is so crucial because we're creating habits. We're creating habits, and those habits influence and affect and form our conscience. Let me encourage you to ask yourself, During the day, does the music, do the podcast that you listen to, do the sources that you get your news from, do the shows that you watch, do the books that you read, do they help you to keep your eyes on God's faithful love? Do they encourage you to walk continually in God's truth? The first way, then, to calibrate our conscience is through consistency. Whatever we do, listen, whatever we do consistently will calibrate our conscience. It will inform and infect our conscience. And so be purposeful with that. Know that and then be purposeful with it. And allow your conscience to be informed by God's Word by God's people, by his Holy Spirit. The second way to calibrate our conscience is through company. It's through company. Probably uh, the saying that my wife has repeated to our children through the years more than any other, Millbrand and William, Could both share it with you. I haven't prepped them even this morning. Is you become who you're with. You become who you're with. And that's true for adults as well, not just children. We become who we are with. That is a fact, it's how we're made. We are relational creatures, and we become who we're with. In verse 4, David writes, I do not sit with deceitful men. He's saying here, not that he doesn't have to interact with deceitful men, right? Because we're all out in the world, Not that we don't have to work with deceitful men. Not that we don't have to interact. He says, I do not hang out with deceitful men, nor do I consort with hypocrites. In fact, I abhor, he writes, the company of evildoers and refuse to hang out with the wicked. On the flip side... The contrast is, in verse 8, he says, I love the house where you live, O Lord, the place where your glory dwells. And then he ends the psalm with this, in verse 12, My feet stand on level ground. It's in the great assembly or with the great company of believers that I will praise the Lord. So there's this stark contrast in this psalm. David acknowledges the type of company that he keeps, calibrates his conscience. It affects his ability to walk in integrity. Paul would remind the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that bad company corrupts good character. I was talking to Jeremy this week, our youth minister, and he told me that Camden, Alcorn, spoke to our teens about this very thing this past Wednesday night. And it's a great message. And I, I want you, I want you to notice something about this statement in 1 Corinthians 15 that perhaps you haven't before. This statement is a warning to you. It's a warning. It's not just like it's not just a good proverb or something nice to put in a Hallmark card. It's a warning. It does not say that bad company corrupts those who already have bad character. It doesn't say that bad company, you know, that people with bad character like to get together with bad company. It doesn't say that. It says bad company corrupts good character. You see, we can have a clear conscience We can have both a strong moral compass and strong moral conviction and be corrupted by bad company. It's a warning. And the other point to make about this statement is is if this is true, then I think the flip side is also true, meaning if bad company corrupts good character, then good company develops good character. Are you following me? If bad company corrupts it, good company develops it. So if you're wanting to grow in good character, then hang out with people who have good character. The second way to calibrate our conscience is through company. What does it look like? to walk in integrity. Well, it's a broad topic. But in Psalm 26, in this prayer of integrity, David asks God to examine his conscience and encourages us to think about how our consistency in our company affects our conscience. I want to conclude this morning with a story. Again, it's uh, it's in this book by James Merritt. Character still counts. I love this. I love this story. Um, it's about a group of salesmen who uh, were leaving a Chicago convention, and they were they were late in arriving to O'Hare International Airport, which. Uh, for those of you that have been through O'Hare, it's difficult enough getting through O'Hare, but if you're late, that makes things extra hard. Um, and they were trying to get home, uh, and they were late, and so they were, they were running through the terminal. They were hurrying through the ter- terminal, and they, as they were running, they heard over the loudspeaker their, their, the call, the last call for their flight. And so they picked up speed, and they just are running. They're taking off through the airport, and they're dodging this person and that person, and they're weaving in and out of the crowds, and they're dragging their their luggage behind them. And two of the men in this group of salesmen, they run into this table, and it was a table that was stacked with with gift baskets of apples, and they overturned these baskets, but they all just kept on running because they had to make it to their gate. And they reached their gate just as it was closing, and they managed to board their plane, and they sat down. Ah, they made it. Except for one man. One of those salesmen, he stopped. Let his buddies go on. He decided that he would catch a later flight. You see, his conscience was bothering him. And so he turned back around and he found, happened to be a young boy who was managing that apple stand. He was on his knees and he was in tears. He was, I turned 50 last, uh, two weeks ago and all of a sudden I'm emotional all the time, but <laughs> this, this boy was trying to. This boy is trying to pick up these apples. They were scattered everywhere, and these gift baskets were all over the floor. And so the salesman gets down on his knees beside the young boy and helps him gather up the apples and the baskets and helps him set up his display again. And some of the baskets were damaged, and a bunch of the apples were bruised, and there were a few that had rolled off, you know, and were missing. And so the man opened up his wallet. And he gave the boy three large bills and said, I believe this will, will cover the cost of the damage. And I'm just, I'm really sorry that we messed up your day today. He said, are you okay, buddy? And the boy was fighting back tears, but he managed to say, thank you. And the salesman turned around to head off to the ticket counter to buy another ticket for a different flight home. And he hadn't gotten far when the boy called out, Mr. man turned around. And he said, yes, son. He said, are you Jesus? I love that, I love that story. Mr., are you Jesus? Well, reality is there's only one Jesus. There's only one who's led a blameless life. There's only one spotless Lamb of God. But the rest of us can become people of integrity by keeping our eyes ever on His steadfast love and by walking continually in his great truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this psalm, this psalm of integrity, this prayer of integrity. I pray, Lord, that you take these living words and plant them deep in our heart. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing this morning.